0: When I tell people about how we built our infrastructure, if they are cloud engineers, they're like, oh, yeah, that's the best way to do it. And that's brilliant. They don't necessarily find what we're doing as groundbreaking. When I talk to people in the payment space, it's seen as groundbreaking because it hasn't been done before.
1: You're listening to Leaders in Payments and Fintech, a podcast brought to you by Edgar Dunn and Company, the global payments and fintech consulting firm. Coming to you from the city of London, I'm your host, Martin Kodrish. And in this series, I'm meeting with leaders and practitioners across the industry to find out what it takes to bridge the gap between strategy and execution. My central question is, how can we commercialize and bring the benefits of ever deeper new technology to market in what continues to be a highly regulated industry? If you enjoy these interviews, please do subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. So enough of the intro, let's get straight into today's episode. This week, we meet up with Suresh Vajani. CEO of Cloud9. Founded by Suresh in 2022, Cloud9 is the world's first cloud-based issuer processing platform. He is an experienced financial services executive, having held senior roles at both FCA regulated and leading edge technology companies. He previously served as CEO of Tribe Payments and managing director and president of Global Processing. In our conversation today, we discuss why the payments industry has been behind in moving to the cloud and examine the latest trends in the issuer processing market. We also discussed Cloud9's B Corp status, which again, it is one of the first payment companies to have achieved. We also discussed what it takes to build effective teams and a lot more besides. So I do hope you enjoy this conversation with Suresh. All right, Suresh, so great to uh, have you on the podcast today. How are you doing? Uh, I'm great. So thank you for having me on the podcast. Really appreciate it. Perfect. Well, let's crack on and dive into the uh, conversation. We have uh, a lot to, to cover. Uh, maybe we'll kick off with uh, just a personal introduction uh, your
0: background, and then we'll, we'll dive into Cloud9 uh, and, and the company. Uh, sure. Look, I, I've been in the payment space for longer than I would like to admit, mainly on the issuing side. I originally started as an issuer and bid sponsor back in the day, you know, with the likes of companies such as PaySafe Group. Uh, I was then um, president and managing director of GPS, now known as Thread. I was CEO of Tribe Payments, and, and now I'm CEO of Cloud9.
1: Yeah, and to be fair, I think uh, you know you're a known name on the in the at least in the UK kind of like payments landscape. I think it's fair to say.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, I've I've been very fortunate to encounter like many of the the leading fintechs have kind of indirectly passed through through me in one way or another. Um, right. So there's been a lot of learning in that and and seeing some of the successes and failures that people have had and, and been able to kind of dissect why that that has worked or hasn't worked.
1: Sure, that's what that's what like you said. I suppose it goes back. A, a decade, if not more, right? Your experience directly in fintech? Yeah, it's about 16 years, actually. Yeah. Oh, wow, right, okay. I suppose fintech really, you know, kicked off around, would you say, around t- 2012? When do you think it actually sort of, is there a marker where you, in the back of your mind, say, well, that's when fintech really started? Or...
0: I, I believe it was the the dawn of almost, the 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 first versions of I called them neo banks, but they weren't right. banks. They were kind of ones that competed with with the banks. So let's say uh, revolut or or Monzo when it started with a prepaid card. You know, historically prepaid cards were always seen as it's for people, right? It was the way the perception of it was like no. well you can't get a credit card, so you get a prepaid card. Yeah. And I felt like the likes of Revolut and Monzo when they first launched, um, they turned that on its head and it became like everybody wanted to use their product. So I felt like that was the dawn of of kind of like commercial fintech where before it was payments and you could argue it was prepaid and and it kind of, you know, it was a bit of everything.
1: I think that's fair to say, you're right. You sort of reinvigorated that product, right? Which was previously, a, you know, perhaps like you say, it, was a, it didn't really know where it fitted in the landscape, but they completely reinvigorated and reinvented it, right? Absolutely. So breathe new life into it. Um, okay, so... Um, so we want to talk about Cloud Nine, which is your latest venture, and and, and that's going really well. So, um, and there's a lot of topics there to cover. So why don't we kick off with just a kind of high level intro to the company, and you know what do you actually, what does it actually do for those well, who so don't the, know?
0: Yeah. So so the, the space we're in is something called issuer process thing, right? And, and a lot of people get confused when you say payment processing because historically that often refers to like merchant acquirers. So an issue of processor is ultimately the technology behind the debit cards, the credit cards, the prepaid cards, for, for the ability to actually make payments. Mm. And, and what we've seen in this space is, is that I say that we're in the third wave now, right? And, and I would say the first wave with these um, traditional operators, you know, monolithic architecture, you know, when you think of some of these, these big operators like tsis First Data, you know established companies um, have, have large volumes. And historically, they had always been built to be um, inward-facing. They were kind of monolithic platforms that were inward-facing. And at a later stage, they kind of opened up to have APIs on the platform. So it was kind of, let's say, retrospectively built. Um, and then you have a second wave in issuer processing, where there are these, these, these issuer processes that were built with APIs first. So it was almost very much by design to be out, available to the outside world. You know, when you think of uh, like the likes of like Marquetta and all of these very much API driven, uh, customers can integrate with the APIs with ease and, and do lots of things with that service. Now what we're embarking on at cloud nine, I call it the third wave, but what it is is it, it, it's APIs like, like the others. It's actually designed and fully built for the cloud. Now, what I mean by that is, well, what's the advantages of that? Well, what it is is that when you look at a lot of these issue or processes, they're very regional. They're very much like they operate within a region, they support a region and and they often do it really well. And even when you look at the really large players, they tend to have different platforms in different regions. You know, they work in different ways, different commercial contracts, different messaging types, all of these things. And the reason being is that it's been very difficult to service from a global perspective because of things such as latency, you know, regulation, all of these things. So what we've done at Cloud9 is we have re-engineered the infrastructure that sits behind issue processes. So we are 100% end-to-end in the public cloud. We're the first to launch with cloud-based HSMs. That's the hardware security module that is the encryption, decryption of the cards. And that's always been a bit of a challenge. We have been the first in the world to connect to Visa and MasterCard's cloud endpoints. Now, what a lot of people don't realize is that uh, when you look at um, issue processing, Uh, a lot of them have physical data centers because the schemes, Visa and MasterCard actually give you like a physical server that you actually keep in your data center. And that's how you connect to the cloud Cloud scheme. Uh, And even if people are in the cloud, they've always had that limitation. So what we've done is we're the first to connect to Visa and MasterCard's cloud endpoints. And we have multiple instances of our platform on the back end that replicate in real time. So we're in California, in Virginia, in London, in Frankfurt, in Singapore, and for us to have an instance anywhere in the world, our SLA is two weeks. So if somebody says they want to go into a place where data needs to reside on soil, we can geopartition the data and isolate it within a country or a region. So it's almost like a single platform that could operate anywhere in the world, you know, minimum latency, multiple instances. Um, so it hasn't been done before. It is funny because I use the term, it's kind of decentralized uh, processing." But as soon as I use that, a lot of people jump on me and say, "What blockchain are you using?" And it's nothing to do with blockchain. It's the traditional meaning of decentralized, which is you can have more than one instance as the point of um, making a decision. So it's been built in a very, very different way. You know, even if we look at our team, half of our team are very experienced payments people, but a lot of the tech team are not payments people. They're cloud engineers, and they've re-engineered how the backend works. Now, if I look at other providers in, in our space moving to the cloud, they're often lifting and shifting their code from a physical data center into a cloud environment. And really, you're not you're not maximizing the benefits of the cloud. I, I use this example, it's like converting your petrol car into an electric car when it wasn't really made for that. It wasn't really made to have the advantages of the batteries and all of these things. So There's a difference between lifting and shifting, and at best you would call these processes cloud-hosted. The word cloud-native everybody uses, and I think it's it's, it's massively overused, but a lot of people don't scratch the surface. If they say, oh, you're in a cloud environment, you're in AWS, tick, you're cloud-native. But that isn't, as far as I'm concerned, that is not a definition of cloud-native because it's not using the benefits of the cloud. AWS went down in one region, they would go down in the same way their physical data center would go down. But if they had built it in the right way, you would literally route that transaction by another instance, another cluster. So from a reliability perspective, you can do so much more with it. Even from a, um, you know, even by a design perspective, energy consumption perspective, you can have that horizontal vertical scaling. So it can be built in a very efficient way. So it, as I say, it's been built in a way that's very different from everyone else. Um, and it's been designed to be global from the outset and everyone claims to be global. But the reality is that when you scratch the surface, you realize it's not easy as it sounds on paper.
1: Also, it sounds uh, very interesting. And like you say, it's like a third third wave. Uh, I totally get that concept, but it's taking a step back. Um, you know what about the 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 move to cloud for the industry in general it does feel as though are a bit late uh, in in terms of that shift of that migration to the cloud for the payments industry would you would you first of all agree with that and, and why do you think that is
0: so i do agree with that because yeah. often when i tell people about how we built our infrastructure if they are cloud engineers they're like oh yeah, that's the best way to do it and that's brilliant they don't necessarily find what we're doing as groundbreaking When I talk to people in the payment space, it's seen as groundbreaking because it hasn't been done before. Now, the reality is that, you know, we work in a very regulated environment, right? There are, you know, there are always concerns about data security, uh, data sovereignty, all of these things. Now, I'll give you a simple example. I know that Starling and Monzo were one of the first banks to get approval from the Bank of England to have their infrastructure in a cloud environment. and before that, everybody had gone physical. Now they've moved the needle to show it's possible, but they had to kind of navigate the the bear traps in order to show that there's great security, great controls, all of that around the cloud. Now what I would also say is there is this big misconception about the cloud. Like people often think if it's in the cloud, you know, it's it's accessible anywhere in the world, you know, it's it's somewhere out there. The reality is that when you talk about cloud, it's just that it's someone else's data center, you know, and 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 it's it, you're using it as and when you require it, as opposed to owning it and maintaining it and all of these things. And there are so much safeguards around that that people are unaware of. So you know, let's just say people are worried about data sovereignty, like I'm servicing the UK and I don't want the data to leave the UK, uh, or GDPR, or all of these things. Well, if you build it in the right way to be truly cloud native, you can actually. You know, isolate regions or countries to do that. Other things people are worried about is, oh well, you know, a lot of these cloud providers have American owners, and you know, I don't want the American government to have access to this data. Um, and and you know, there's things called the Cloud Act that people worry about. Now, the reality is that when you look at cloud architecture and 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 your code in deployed in in, in that environment, is that there is a lot of safeguards in place, like. There is an encryption decryption key that only you as a company provide. So I'll I'll give you an extreme example. Let's just say the American government contacted AWS and said, We want access to this person's data. Uh, It's in your environment and we want this. The normal procedure is that they would either push back on it or they would contact the company and say, We have had this request from the government. But ultimately, the company only they have the key to decrypt the data in order for it to be allowed. So it's not like AWS actually have access to see what's happening within that environment. I mean, there's certain controls, but it's not the visibility that you think. You think, oh, they can, you know, go into your 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 source code and see how it's built and see what you do and look at customer data. You know, that is not factual at all. So there's this misconception, right? And and then the other thing that I often say to people is, you know, you have a situation where the British Secret Service, right, have published publicly done a press release saying they now use AWS, um, you know, as, as a way of like, it, it's it's systematic in, in their company. So um, you sit there and say, if it's good enough for the secret service, mm-hmm. you know, I think it's probably good enough for payments. But a lot of this is 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 almost um, like some of it's generational play, right? You almost have the old school technologists that are like, it's better if you own it. It's better if you can access it. You know, it's better like that. And then you have the kind of next generation that's saying, I just don't want the headache. Like the servers, this, the hardware is so expensive that I'd rather get speed to market by paying for it on a monthly basis. You know, it, it's kind of saying, do you want to store your photos on your phone? Or do you want to pay someone two, three pounds a month and actually have all of it protected? So it's it's the same mentality, right? And I think that a lot of this is going to move slowly, but it's a generational play. But a lot of the banks are traditional and they they're worried and, and there's the risk aspect. But the reality is if you do your homework, the benefits that you have and the safeguards you have are, are substantial.
1: Okay. So let's just go over the um the business benefits of, of moving to the cloud, right? So is it is it is it quicker, cheaper or, or better or all three? Well, look, what will you focus on?
0: Look, I, I think that, you know, there's everybody assumes that everything, you know, is potentially cheaper, right? Yeah. Now what I would say is that from a from a outlay perspective, from a capital outlay perspective, cloud is always cheaper, right? Because you are not having to put this outlay to get speed to market. Uh, sorry, you're not having this outlay to buy this availability of servers. Uh, I mean, if you look at something like a HSM, you'd be shocked how expensive they are depending on the number of transactions that they, they do per second. You'd be surprised, you know, you're talking about anything with good volume between 60 70 to 80,000 pounds for a you know a HSM physical server in your physical data center that you will have to upgrade when you reach certain volume again right so these things are not these things that you would have to pay for you could easily spend quarter of a million in in an outlay for the the, the data center uh, and the servers you need to have in there, or you get quicker and, 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 and faster to market in a, in a cloud environment. However, you do potentially have more operating costs, right? So it is a situation where you could argue that the capital outlay in a physical data center was great, and I only have to upgrade it every six months, one year, or two years. Mm. Where here, in a cloud environment, you may have more uh, operational costs on a monthly basis. But what I would say is that if you've designed it right and you're doing it in a way that you're only paying for the data you use, you know, it kind of covers its cost. It's probably, you know, it's probably more cost efficient rather than having this outlay without knowing what volume you're going to have, where within a cloud environment, you almost have a pay-as-you-go model. So I I think that, you know, if you're in a situation where you are, you know, it's costing you 60, 70, 80,000 a month, the chances are your revenue is proportional to that because you're using that. So, you know, it all depends how you look at it. Is it cheaper? In some ways it is. Is it, is it more expensive? In some ways it is. Uh, but the true thing is that it allows you to scale up and manage your costs as you get revenue coming in. Now, if you did that in a physical environment and said, I'll get, I don't know, slower servers or a smaller HSM and you do really well, you have to upgrade them quicker, so it's almost like I didn't even get my return on investment, so these are things that people need to consider.
1: So often, what are of the issues for and we should actually talking about who your um, you know who, who your customers are and who you're actually selling the, the solution to, but um, and please perhaps you can cover that in, in, in your next re- response. but in terms of the migration to the cloud, that's often a big issue for for businesses who are already set up elsewhere. so I was wondering. Yeah, A, who are you actually selling the solution to and what are they currently doing and how do, how do you support them to migrate to the cloud?
0: Great, great question. Uh, look, a lot of our customers are, are either, there's almost three tiers. There's like the, the tier one banks, right? The ones that are kind of saying, we want to modernize our backend. Um, and then there's the neo banks that are saying, we want to use a, a modern tech stack that allows us to do more. Um, and then the other ones are fintechs that ultimately want to use the best technology, but ultimately want to grow around the world. Um, you know, if you just look at Revolut, for example, they use different processors in different regions. You know, even if you look at Monzo in the US, they're using, they're not able to use the same processor. So do they really want the headache of having different providers and different connections and all of that, where they could just choose one that grows with them? So, you know, those are kind of the three types of customers that we service, kind of neo banks, established banks, and kind of fintechs that want to do something different in, in that environment. I'll give you an example. We're working with one client that's building a bank in the metaverse, right? And what they're saying is they've identified branches are closing down and you would go into their metaverse. And they already have a million in their waiting list, by the way. Um, you, you go into their metaverse and then you speak to an agent. There you open an account, you do the KYC, You create your own cards design as an NFT, and it's physically sent to you as well, but you service it via the Metaverse. So is it going to fly? I don't know, but it's just, you know, someone who wants to push the boundaries in that space in ways that it hasn't been done before. Um, In terms of the challenges that these providers have is, look, you'd be surprised, but when it comes to issue processing, a lot of people outsource the headache. Because if you look at the the costs versus... um, uh, you know, it, it's always cheaper, actually, let me rephrase that. Depending on your volume, it's usually always cheaper to outsource it than, than, than not, right? I mean, you look at something like Barclays, you look at something like Bank of America, look at the size of them, they all use outsourced issuer processes. So often, the, the, the question is, why would they migrate? Because they see more efficiencies uh, in the way that we operate. The process of migrating a live portfolio is really complicated uh, and there's a lot that can go wrong. So my only advice is, whether you choose to migrate to, make sure they have experience in migrations. And we kind of pride ourselves of doing some of the more, more complex migrations, having done that at previous organizations. You know, um, The team I have have worked with Revolut, Monzo, Starling, Curve. Um, you know, from inception. So very, very experienced team. Um, and they, 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 as I say, there's a lot that can go wrong. Now, if I just look at tech companies as a rule, where they want to move from a physical environment to a cloud environment, um, you know, I'll be honest with you, it's not an easy process, right? right. Um, a, a lot of these things are monolithic. There's no microservice architecture. It's not a situation that you could say, let's move over elements of it, right? It's almost like, You know, are they just going to lift and shift? And as I say, is it just cloud hosted versus designed for the cloud? So I think what my advice is to any company that wants to do it is is understand why they're doing it. Like, what is the reason that that you want to do this, right? Um, Is it because, you know, in marketing, it's a great thing to do to say you're cloud-based? And if that's the case, then yeah, sure, lift your code and put it in a cloud environment. But if you really want to maximize the cloud, you know, you need to look at ways of redesigning your infrastructure. And maybe you do that bit by bit. Maybe you you take your test environment or your UAT environment or your your, your APIs and say, let's deploy that first in the cloud. Um, but I would say that re-engineering it, bit by bit, it's, it's, it's more costlier, but you will actually get the benefits of the cloud. And as I say, if it's just for marketing to say you're in the cloud, lift and shift. But I do say the customers are getting more savvy and they are kicking the tires to understand is it really cloud native or is it just cloud hosted
1: uh, moving on to the next subject around sustainability love to get your perspective on on the fact that uh, cloud nine has is a b corp certified company um what did it take you to 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 become certified and and you know, what's your view on sustainability and payments, sir?
0: So I'm going to answer this as a payments person looking into sustainability Mm. rather than an advocate of ESG. And the reason I say that is, you know, I've always been in payments, but I've always wanted to do things the right way. And and our journey was, you know, we want to do things ethically. I mean, every company wants to do things ethically. And Mm. what I found was, we wanted to get some sort of approval that we, we are doing things the right way. And we started to look at kind of accreditations and actually realized that a lot of people just pay money to get this badge of honor, whether it's, you know, this logo on their website to say, mm-hmm. oh, you know, we're a carbon neutral company or we're this or we're that. And then when you scratch the surface, you actually realize that, you know, it's all here. There's actually, you know, they've literally paid someone to get this badge and then they say, hey, you know, we do a lot of bad things but we pay someone and it kind of balances it off. And right we're all good people in the end and actually that was something we didn't want to do um we were first you know when we actually did some research we realized that that b Corp was kind of one of the highest accreditations that you can have um you know from an esg perspective and we said look this is something that's really important to us and i think we should embark on this journey and i say it's a journey because Although we B Corp certified, it definitely doesn't mean tick we're good to go. It's a constant journey, but it was actually a lot harder than you may think. It wasn't a case of um, oh, we're nice to our people and we've got I don't know bean bags in our office. It's it's not it's not like that. If there was there was things in there that you know things such as you know what's the highest paid person in the company compared to the lowest paid person in terms of you know multiples of that. These are things that you can't fudge, right? Um it was it was it was a very hard process, but actually it was something that was definitely worthwhile doing because it made us think about certain things. Now, what I would say is that it is that it's great to get B Corp certified because it shows that we have this certain mentality about doing things the right way. But there are some amazing benefits that that you get that you don't really think about. So one of the things we counted was there's there's massive cost savings, right? Uh, and that doesn't really go sustainability and all of these, but I'll give you an example. You know, we we had the policy that you know we would buy reconditioned computers of the highest spec, but reconditioned computers mm-hmm. rather than new computers, right? And you know whether we're buying like top end Apple Macs, right? Um, but it was actually something that saved the company money. You know, we we have we try to have policies in which. You know, if you're traveling at certain times in the day, you know, we try to either encourage you to travel on public transport, or if you have to um, get like a taxi or something, ideally that you're, you're putting it together with a number of people or it's outside of hours for safety reasons. So there were these kind of little tweaks. To mm. make, some of it was just like, well, isn't this just common sense? But it was these these things that kind of make a difference. Um and this is kind of from a culture perspective, but even from, um, you know, from an environment perspective, we, we wanted to do things like, um, there was a lot of greenwashing in the space, right? So we embarked on this journey to say, we're going to do things that are going to be amazing. And, 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 and we discovered this theory versus reality. So I'll give you some examples, right? So we were going to do this thing where we were going to re- use um, recycled plastic from the ocean. Uh, we were gonna say anybody that uses our um, our platform, we will potentially um, uh, subsidize the cost of the card in order for them to use this so it's not costing more. And it was a great idea and everybody's, oh, that's so clever. Then we scratched the surface and then we realized that if you look at the carbon footprint, in order for them to ship the plastic from the ocean to the site where you're producing the card, and if you look at the chemicals they need to do to treat the plastic and dye it, you're actually creating way more damage to the environment than actually just producing a brand new card. And what we realized on that was we're actually better off almost at like paying for someone to take the plastic out of the ocean and recycle it for something else, but actually just produce a standard card, which sounds crazy, but it was a theory versus reality. We looked at biodegradable cards. We said, let's look biodegradable cards it will be great for the environment and then we realize that the more frequently you use them they start to break down from the moment they're issued so it could be that it's valid for three years but actually after a year it may not actually be working potentially right and then you're like well actually do you want a card in your pocket that doesn't even you know it's all kind of the logos are all blended and it's not working properly and then you produce another card in year two and you're thinking if i'm producing a biodegradable card every three years That's probably the same damage as a normal plastic card for five years. So we we kind of went on this journey to realize that that one of the things we said is we're not going to do any BS, right? We're really not going to do anything where we're pretending to do something that we're not. We're either going to be honest with people and say, we can do this. If we can't do it, what's the reasons behind it? I kind of call it authentic, right? Do it the right way. And um. And the other thing we discovered was planting trees, right? So it was like, oh, isn't it great? We should plant a tree every time we do something. And great intention. And and the people that are doing it, it's amazing. But when you do the research, you realize that sometimes you don't actually get the benefit of the, the carbon you're trying to offset till 10, 20 years later until the tree's grown, right? And what about if the tree doesn't grow? And they say the tree's being planted. It doesn't mean someone's maintaining it. So... Look, I'm not knocking anyone or anything. I'm just talking about what we discovered on our journey. And the other thing we've done is we built this tool on our platform where we measure the carbon footprint for us to process a transaction, right? Um, Now, people say, oh, oh, is it for what you're buying? Now, the, the truth is, what you buy in the basket, that data doesn't come through via the acquirer to the processor. Even the card scheme doesn't know. They just know you've spent £10 there. They don't know what you bought. So, you know, hopefully we will get that data in the future. But what we're interested in saying, everything that we know that's in our environment, that's factual and actual, we want to measure that and then be able to do things with it. So it's been, we've laid the foundations for it. We're partnering with like-minded companies to do things in different ways. But I just think that, you know, there, there will be a point when people will differentiate one company to another based on its ethics, based on the way it looks after the future. And right now, you could probably say, you know, it's a factor for some, not for others. But you have to look at your children and see how they operate and what they decide and what's important to them. Because this is a growing trend and it's happening whether we like it or not.
1: Um, all right, let's move on to our kind of last section um, before we wrap up. Uh, and let um, would like just explore, get your reflections on, you know, what does it actually take to to, to stand up a business in in, in the in this heavily regulated market of payments, and you you know you've, you've got some experience. You've stood up in multiple businesses now. So, what are your sort of top tips, um, or, or what what do you think has really helped you succeed um, in 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 building these businesses?
0: So, look, I think uh, the, the the key thing is there's a lot of people that come into a new sector and they come with great new ideas mm. and they want to. Revolutionize something and they want to, they use the word disrupt and all of these things. And and in some ways, they've got amazing ideas. But what I would say is that, you know, financial services with the regulation, it's really important that not only do you understand the regulation, but why it's there in place. You know, a, a lot of people feel like it's a hindrance. You know, if I'm opening a bank account and they want to have my bank statement and my passport, it's a headache. I just want to open an account. What's the big deal? Right. And to an average person that just wants to open an account, it is an inconvenience. But if people start to understand why those, place, those measures are in place, they're probably in a better position to disrupt rather than saying, I'm going to find ways of not doing one thing or another. So what I would say is that never stop learning. You know, I have been in the industry a long time, but I never sit there and think I know it. I feel like uh, the moment you think you know it, you're destined to fail, right? So there's this, always this thing about, Always keep learning. Um, and then the other secret, I believe, is hiring people that are better than you. You know, a, a lot of people worry about, you know, like, like getting people better than them because they potentially could replace them. Right. But the reality is that if you hire someone better than you, yeah. you know, you actually put yourself in a very strong position because these people will bring skills to you that, that you don't have. That's the very nature of it. Um, and and, and when, you're, when you're in the startup space, especially in the startup space, it's very lonely being a founder. You know, if you have a strong team with you, um, it makes a massive difference because they'll bring you up when you're downs. And then you know, on your high, they kind of level you and anchor you as well. So you know, that, that team you have, that initial team you have will be magnified across the whole company, right? If you have toxic leaders, if you have bullies in that environment, that will magnify across the whole organization. If you do things right, and sometimes you're at a contradiction, you might say, I have someone in the team that's quite toxic, right? But they bring us a lot of money, and they got great contacts. And you tolerate them, but you potentially lose some of your best people as a result because, you know, you, you tolerate that you're, you're going to lose other people that, you know, they don't value those things. So you, you want people to have the same values as you. Like I believe you unite a team on your vision, but they all have different. Like they all have different approaches. Like if I just have everybody that has the same view as me, everything will be the same. Like I right. do want people that challenge me, that argue with me, but we united on the same vision. We want the same outcome, but we may have a different route. And and I use the analogy. I used to use the analogy. Well, actually, I have two analogies. I have one which is the, the diversity of a team, and I used to use about football. But actually, I think that. Uh, motor racing is is more relevant because you know you've got the driver you've got the guys in the pit stop you've got the engineers that are not even at the race you've got the designers you've got the you know you've got the technicians that aren't even there like you know you look at the technician that designed the car and you look at the car the, the driver racing the car they all belong in the same team but you could not get different ends of the spectrum right mm. from from how one character is to the other but still they belong to an, a winning team. So I think people feel like, oh, I want everyone to be a certain way, but the diversity of the team is really important. And, and, and when I say diversity, by the way, I don't just mean race and gender, right? I really don't because a lot of people say, well, I've got females, you know, uh, and, and, and that means that I'm 50-50 and everything's great. But I would say that diversity is, is ultimately about where they've come from. Right. And and, and I would argue that if you had, I don't know, I'm going to be stereotypical. Let's say you had 10 people that were, you know, white, middle-aged Englishmen and half of them came from a a really underprivileged background, living on an estate somewhere. Mm. And the others went to Oxford. That's more diverse than having 50-50 where all of them went to Oxford. Or I'm Asian and I went to Oxford. I clearly didn't. But if I had gone there, you know what I'm saying. Diversity yeah. goes beyond that. There's different dimensions of diversity. And different, want diverse, with different perspectives.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think you also mentioned the, diversity of personality is important, right, within the team. But yeah, as well. absolutely, so, because you know, it's you need to challenge each other. They
0: come yeah. with different views. You know, they they have different views and 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 challenge things in different ways. And 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 then the the second analogy I have, and I've used this a few times, is there is this perception that you know you start a company early days. And that the people that you've got in the company will be there forever, right? And and, and I kind of say, when you start a company, you're kind of in division four in the football. And the players you've got to win you division four may not be the same players that you have when you're in the Premier League, right? And that could include anyone. That could include me as the CEO. So what I'm saying is that unless you're constantly learning and getting better, you are limited to that division. So... If you're in a startup, you need to grow with the company so that you are constantly learning so that you are getting better and better because you are literally changing leagues on a regular basis before you're a blue chip company operating, you know, a listed company in the stock market. You could argue a CEO for a, uh, a, CEO for a startup and a CEO for a stock market listed company would have different skill sets. Right. But if they've actually learned along the way, they're in a strong position. But if they haven't, they are potentially the wrong people right you know when people look at zuckerberg and it's like well he started it and he's the the ceo of one of the most wealthy you know successful companies of all mm-hmm. time yeah. uh, those are rare right you know we've got examples of you know tom blowfield like he's no longer he was no longer the ceo of, of Monzo. you have even Ann bowden right she's no longer the ceo of, of starling right you've got to say you know there, there, there's a there's a point right where you take it but you know, what I'd say is people need to realize that you've got to keep learning, you've got to upskill. And sometimes, you know, if the staff are not upskilling, and even if you yourself are not upskilling, you are at a risk to the business and you could be replaced. And that's the reality of it.
1: Perfect. But what's the future hold for Cloud9? What are the um, expectations? What are your future plans? Giving out, giving away too much confidential information, just uh, just in general, where do, you, where do you see yourself in the next couple of years? I
0: mean, look, the reality is that we've we've shown... Something that hasn't been done before, and actually the reception has been really phenomenal. Like we get so much praise from our competition saying, "I can't believe you guys have shown that it's possible, right?" Um, and then we've got a lot of customers that are with with you know want to do things in a different way, and and they kind of they go on this journey where they say, you know, you are a bit too new, we're not sure about you. They meet the team, they meet the technology, I and mean, we've got really strong investment. know um we've got over 50 staff now in total um you know we we've just closed our um we've just closed one of our rounds recently and and, you know we were oversubscribed which is which is great um and what what would you say actually
1: just um just uh, sorry to interrupt what is the investment appetite like right now has it recovered or what was that raised process like for you
0: so there was a time like let, let's say a year ago when you pick up the phone call and say hey, we're doing something and it's great and then before you put the phone down the money's in the bank account right mm-hmm. uh you know those days are gone right yeah. it's kind of like real valuations it's real return to profit yeah. um what are you doing how are you doing it are these figures you know, people often overhype their forecasts. You know, we've actually had to go, like, we almost had to chop them, chop them, chop them and say, guys, our figures are really low. And we've mm-hmm. actually gone with really low expectations when the industry average is this. So we've actually gone the other way. Rather than overhyping them, we've actually underpaid them and educated them on what the industry average is. And actually, it was it was way more refreshing as opposed to, saying we're going to do something and then they knock it down by 20, 30, 50, 60%. It's almost that we presented a figure, gave them an explanation and they actually, they marked it up. So it was, it was a different approach. And the other thing I would say is that, you know, the, the the time when you feel like everyone's bidding for your business, you know, that's not the case. It's definitely an investor's market. Right. Um, and But do, do you see any green shoots
1: of of slight recovery in the investor appetite? I mean, obviously we've gone through eighteen months, possibly of of you know of, trying to find the bottom. I mean, do 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 you get a sense that the investors feel as though we've reached a bottom now, and you know next year hopefully you know the, the overall appetite from an investor point of view is going to improve?
0: Look, it depends, and and, and when I say it depends, it depends on what your product is, right? right. Because if you you know payments is so broad, right? Yeah. There is a that there is this kind of tiredness for people launching a similar product to others, right? You know, if, if when I was when I was working on Revolut, if I had a pound for everybody that says they're gonna be the next Revolut, I probably wouldn't have to be working right now because everybody wanted to copy and it. it was like, well, what makes you different? It was no, it's yeah. just gonna be another brand. And actually, it just doesn't work. So what I would say is that. You know, if you have a B to C product and you know it's something that's going to be quite a lot of outlay, and you don't have a clear picture on return on investment, you know, investment's still going to be very hard. If you're operating in a way where you have a clear route to revenue, but it's not, it's not an afterthought; it's almost core to the product, right? Uh, I think you're in a stronger position. So I would say B to B companies probably very yeah. good, strong uh, green shoots. B2C companies, unless unless there's a proper reoccurring revenue model, yeah. you know, it's still not quite there. You know, it's it's not just, uh, we'll grow the company at the expense of the investors' funding, and we'll see what we can do on the other end of it, and then say, hey, we don't have any revenue, but we've got 20 million customers. You know, those days are gone. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think you're right in saying that there aren't
1: many spaces, yeah. if any, where there isn't just a huge amount of, similar solutions all competing with each other right so in that b2c space uh where brand yes. building is absolutely crucial and you need to invest so much to raise awareness and you know you get, get drive consumer adoption and it's it's uphill struggle whereas b2b i would agree is, is kind
0: of the economics of the situation dynamics are different i would say though is that you know if i was an established company mm. this is the prime time to be doing m and a's like there they are yeah. some amazing complementary companies that they could be mopping up at the cost of next to nothing and it would literally like triple their, 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 their valuation of their own company, you know? So it's, it's the perfect time to be buying some of these fintechs or operators because Mm. there are bargains to be had. And we've already seen examples of that with, with certain companies, you know?
1: Yeah. All right. Well, that's an entirely new topic, which I don't think we have time to go into today, but, um, Thank you so much. Any sort of final comments or thoughts before we wrap things up, Suresh?
0: Um, Look, all I'll say is that um, my my, my one other point to add is, I just wanna say that, you know, as an industry, we're constantly growing as a sector. And uh, I would really encourage people that really wanna push the boundaries in whatever they do, is to encourage and hire more people outside of the industry. Because they come with fresh approaches and fresh ideas, and there is one thing that I'm a big advocate at, which is um, is hiring people that may feel like they don't deserve to be in that role? Uh, it sounds like a really strange question, strange strange comment to say, but there there are there are marginalized individuals that have so much to offer, and they've never really been given a chance to shine right. they They're often the ones that might apply for a role when they see these just not strong enough and you know, they never get it to the interview stage, but you'd be surprised. You get them in front of you, right? Uh, they will absolutely shine because they are so hungry to achieve. They will potentially be some of your most highest achieving people. They'll be extremely loyal to you and they will they will not leave you because someone's offered them more money because you've given them this break. And I have hired many people where I've, I've got them out of industry um, and they have done exceptionally well. Some of them have gone on to be CEOs of other companies and all it was, was giving someone a chance that nobody else would give them. And, and, and it works sometimes and it doesn't, but I would say that I, in my experience, I've seen about a 75% success rate, you know, like where they come in and they actually do well and they do things in a different way. You know, that, that loyalty is you're giving someone a break that never had the break ever. Perfect. Well, that's uh,
1: that's a great note to, uh, to finish on Suresh. Thank you so much. Um... Just for the audience, what's the best way of uh, reaching out to you, contacting you?
0: Uh, look, if anybody wants to get in touch, my, my email address is uh, Suresh, S-U-R-E-S-H, at cloud9.com, spelled in the old English way that I've been told, the old traditional oh, so- obsolete English, which is C-L-O-W-D, the number nine, and then dot .com, so cloud9.com. Apparently, became obsolete in the Tudor times. Oh, wow. And the reason we call Cloud9 is we say, although we knew technology, We represent old business values, so it kind of works and represents what we do. Fantastic.
1: All right, Suresh, thank you again, and I'll see you next time. Great. Thank you. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's episode. To hear more interviews, please do subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your podcast platform of choice. It helps and means a lot. Also, I welcome any questions, ideas, or suggestions, so feel free to make contact and say hello reach out to me on LinkedIn or at edgardunn.com. You can send me a message there. Or you can email me on martin.coderush at edgardunn.com. I look forward to hearing from you and I will see you next time.